Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Welcome to The Politics Guys, the podcast where we take the long-form view of politics and put it into deeper context. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Daytona State College, and I'm joined this week by Jay Carson. Before we start moving more formally into our topic, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of our listeners who ask about my well-being online. If you didn't already know from social media, I evacuated my family for Hurricane Irma, which is why you haven't heard from me in a while. Um, it's been really incredibly busy these few past weeks, and I did want to let everyone know that we are all happy, happy and healthy, and that even our home came through without any harm. So thank you again for thinking and praying about us and our fellow Floridians. Um, with that, Jay, I'd like to turn to what I think might mark the biggest story of the week. And for me, the big story is Donald Trump's UN speech. I've been parsing the text for a few days now, and I really think it's going to go down and is one of his most articulate. And longtime listeners know, and anyone who follows us on social media knows, that I am not a Trump fan. So my praise here is just a bit unusual. I want to be careful, though. It isn't that I agree with the content of everything in his speech, as you might imagine, given my libertarian tendencies, but I thought it was the best expression of his positions on some key global issues. I also thought it was a relatively bold but tempered speech. So, Jay? Let me get your overall take on the Trump speech and then have some specific passages I want to pull out. Do you agree overall? Okay, well, I, I do too. And I've, I've got my, I've got my background music here. Uh, oh, yeah, my, you... my Trump speech background. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, no, I would, I would agree. I, I thought this was, this was Trump doing uh, Trump the, the right way. Um, he was blunt. He was to the point. He had the the Rocket Man line, which which is a very you know again the, the goofy Trump uh, uh, nicknames, um, uh, but but it was still it was an articulation of policy, which is something that that you don't see or haven't really seen uh, from Trump. Maybe aside from um, uh, his, his inaugural, uh, where he's he's stepping up and saying this is how I see the world. This is how uh, things ought to go. This is. Uh, how I see what I see is the purpose for the UN. So for all the the you know folks who said is this was a warmongering, uh, threatening nuclear war sort of thing, I, um, I I I don't see that, but I, I do see this this is a um, strong speech in terms of look here's what the UN is for, um, uh, and here's what it has to do, and, and if the UN isn't for calling out those regimes that are uh, you know, essentially rogue, rogue regimes uh, in terms of how they treat their own people, in terms of how they treat the rest of the world, uh, you know, then what's it there for? So, so no, I, I, I agree with you on, on this. And uh, um, I think this, this was, I mean, Trump's most articulate and he stuck to the script. Uh, and uh, I, I thought it, uh, I thought it was good. So I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts too. Cause again, we, we tend to look at, we're both uh, Republicans, I guess, but we tend to look at things in a, a different way. And, Right. I mean, it, you're you're more of the kind of classical conservative and well, I should say you're more of a conservative and I'm maybe more of the classical libertarian. Um, so, yeah, we probably do have a few differences. But I, I mean, I think he sets this up eloquently. I mean, in an age old way. Right. This is set up that the world is doing better, but we have a problem. And so it's up to us to decide which way the world is going to go or in his world. Right. Quote, we have both immense promise and great peril. But for me, the thing that I'm really interested in first was he kind of outlines this fuller view of what he means by his age-old signature phrase, America first. He says, quote, 
As president of the United States, I will always put America first, just like you, as the leaders of your country, will always and should always put your countries first. And as a matter of fact, I mean, it's one of the biggest applause lines that he gets in the speech. So, mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think about that kind of a vision? I mean, this is somewhere where we might have a little bit of a difference. So what do you think? No, I, I think that's that's fantastic. And, and what he's done is is redefining uh, what America first has been, you know, look, there, there was in, in days past, uh, what was called an America first movement, uh, you know, sort of from the thirties, uh, through the fifties that, that has a, a, a well-deserved, uh, bad reputation, uh, and being isolationist, uh, in being, uh, you know, with more than a, more than a hint of, uh, of racism or anti-Semitism, uh, the idea that America wants to seal itself off uh, and is not going to uh, extend its itself for uh, other nations, um, and and for most of his presidency and during his campaign, I think the left picked up on that to to attach that label. And this was Trump's opportunity to redefine what he meant by that, uh, and and I think he did it. Uh, and and I think it's also a good a good piece of of realism. Uh, if everyone at the UN hears this and, and, and Trump, uh, Trump says it, that, look, our first obligation as delegates to the United Nations is not to some global world order, but it's to our own nations that elected us, uh, and, and who, who we lead. And, 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 you know, tied into that was his use that it's been, been discussed and criticized of the word sovereignty, yep. which is a big word for Trump. Um. But but again, I think it's it's important in that there are uh, many on the left, I think, who who very much uh, uh, prefer. Uh, I, I'm not sure the best way to put this. I put more stock in the the UN uh, and and what it does uh, mm-hmm. than what they they do in in what their own national governments and 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 you know conservatives have for years seen this as as an erosion of of national sovereignty. Well, I think of, that- uh, well we. I think there's a lot there to be said, and I, but I think before we continue into that, we should mention our uh, our first sponsor, DaVinci. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in today's bi- uh, digital business world, the face-to-face meeting still matters. I know that that's true with you, Jay, and I know that's true with me in academia. Um, but do you really want to meet your important client or potential investor in some coffee shop? Or if you're like me, my office, which is even worse than a coffee shop. Uh, <laughs> sure, it may be convenient, but it doesn't exactly scream professionalism. Um, especially if your office is right across from the bathroom. Hi, me. Um, so here's the thing. Right now, you can skip the noisy coffee shops, the expensive hotel rooms, the flushing from next door, um, and consider a more professional alternative and simply book a DaVinci meeting room. Um, DaVinci provides you with instant access to over 5,000 incredibly affordable meeting rooms and well-known offices and locations in every city you can think of. And they make that totally easy. You just search, book, and meet. Your DaVinci meeting room comes fully staffed, equipped with all the latest tech, which is a plus, and high-speed internet. Whether you need a day office or a conference room, a boardroom, or a training space, DaVinci has what you need to make your next business meeting a success. Best of all, and this is important, DaVinci meeting rooms start at just $10 an hour. Entrepreneurs, startups, and Fortune 500 companies all have enhanced their image with professional meeting spaces from DaVinci. Book your spaces now at davincimeeting.com slash TPG, and that first hour is on them. That's davincimeeting.com slash TPG 
and your first hour is free. Terms and conditions apply. For details, see davincimeeting.com slash tpg. Where are you holding your next meeting? So why don't we get back to thinking about the, the meeting we've been talking about, which is the UN, um, yes. and this, this debate between, as you were kind of setting it up, um, between conservatives who have been, um, in, in recent times, very skeptical of the idea that you are eroding sovereignty by becoming too involved with these large-scale multinational treaties. And the United Nations is really kind of the, you know, it, it, it's, it's the idealized type of the problem with that. And then for liberals, on the other hand, this idea that, um, you know, that comes around again and again in, in sci-fi, that we will eventually have world government and that the UN yeah. is the embodiment of that potentiality, not to say that it is, but that it's the potentiality of that. Um, and that's where we kind of left off. So continue, Jay. Well, you know, something else that this is, you know, a bit of interesting kind of history. And I know some have viewed, you know, when the UN was created, um, there, there were some who, who, who saw it both ways. Some, some looked at this as a, uh, tool to preserve American Western hegemony, uh, in sort of the new post-World, uh, World War II, uh, new world order. Uh, others viewed it as sort of that, that um, uh, camel's nose under the tent, uh, you know, moving towards a one world government. Um, you know, I think in experience, it, it sort of proved to be neither, um, you know, one just because of the march of, of events um, uh, that it, 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 it didn't work as a, a tool of, of Western hegemony, really. Uh, when, when decolonialization happened, uh, when, uh, uh China, uh, changed its government, um, that, that sort of went out the window and it became something different. Uh, by the same token, I don't think you can say that the UN's done anything, uh, to really erode, uh, national, uh, uh sovereignty, uh, certainly not of the United States, but, but it's, it's, it's always out there and there's always this kind of cry from the left of let's, you know, oh, we, before we do something, before we take action, let's go to the UN, let's make sure the UN's okay with it. That, that sort of thing. And I think, I think Donald Trump sort of re put, put the UN back in its place. of so this is a, a debating society. This is a place where we come and talk, uh, sometimes forcefully. Uh, uh but it's, it's not a, a, uh, I guess, a, a tool for for a new a new government or at least hasn't been so far I and mean, what's yeah your thoughts on that well and it, i'm glad that you asked that because i think that the line that has not gotten enough attention the one that comes after that is when he says that the nation state remains the best vehicle for elevating the human condition i mean i think he's summing right. up exactly what you're saying there and I understand hard, hard to believe that. Yeah. Trump was kind of said it more eloquently than I just did. But yeah. yes. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons you have to give him some credit for this speech. Right. It was uh, I mean, obviously we know this is, you know, no speech at the U.N. is any singular president's, you know, handiwork. But uh, we know that this is more difficult for Trump to be collaborative than I'd say that other presidents have been in the past. And so I think in part it's been his ability to be collaborative that has made this speech. Um, what it is, and it is this kind of eloquent statement. But as you know, as a as a libertarian, I take a little bit of worry about this. I mean, I I'm, my hope is what he means by the nation state remains the best vehicle for elevating the human condition, is that we need to be wary of international as opposed to some international precisely uh, organization. Uh, yes, not saying that the state is the best. 
uh, organizer of everything because I, I would be with you there that I disagree. But in terms of international affairs. Uh, yes. I mean, I, and that's what I would hope. Um, but, you know, that's a, it's a fascinating question. And it's also fascinating that he uses that term, you know, nation state, given, you know, we are a multinational country in the United States. And so it is a it's a fascinating purposeful use of word and, and i've wondered and it's a very political sciencey word too yes that's not that's not something you typically hear from trump no i mean that's something that you would maybe expect or maybe even get have obama be criticized for for using that kind of terminology but you know from trump it almost seems i guess you put it it seems even more elegant given what his baseline in some ways <laughs> <laughs> is Gift of yeah, gift of low expectations. Especially. And I want to give I want to give Trump absolute um, uh, props on one particular line that I think has also not gotten enough uh, gotten enough press, and that was when he took a shot at socialism. I am really really tired as a libertarian Republican of the trope that Marxism and socialism has never worked because it's never really had the chance. <laughs> Right, right. Um, and no, so he, I he love did, that yeah, line. Yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll let you say the line. Because yeah, I know it, yeah, the problem in Venezuela is not that socialism has been poorly implemented, but that socialism has been faithfully implemented. And it's funny because I had uh, a professor in graduate school who, you know, he was an open uh, Marxist, and he would always challenge his class with the other view, and he'd say, well, one of the things that we have to deal with is that anytime we get in charge, it has not worked, and we have to People work through killed, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'll give him credit for at least recognizing that that's a problem. But you know, I think that we're probably going to agree that that is always a problem. So, but so I, I love that. But then here's where I think we might have we're going to have some conversation, Jay. And I'm well, really no, interested. I, I would just say, before you move on to that, I would yeah, say I, what was also interesting was the, the reaction of the the assembled delegates, and and it was a he he said it and he looked out in the audience and there was sort of a, a stony silence, and and there was the you know wondering is, you know. I don't think it was supposed to be an applause line because I don't think anyone would have expected that to be an applause line, but that was kind of the hard talk and, and putting it out there and, and looking uh, some of these regimes in the face uh, and saying something that they probably didn't want to hear and something a lot of left doesn't, doesn't want to hear, but yeah, your next point. Well, I mean, and it builds on that. So I, I love that. And then he goes on. To, I think Lamb Blast, the pillar that has held together conservatives and many libertarians in the Republican Party, when he says, quote, in America, we seek stronger ties of business and trade with all nations of goodwill, but this trade must be fair and it must be reciprocal. For too long, the American people were told that mammoth multinational trade deals, unaccountable international tribunals, and a powerful global bureaucracy were the best way to promote success. And I can almost, and in a slightly different context, hear a President Bernie Sanders saying the same thing. So my question is, is by Trump, you know, outlining this position again, the idea that free trade is not fair trade, have, have Republicans finally given up on classical liberalism? What do you think? Um, you know... Again, I see. I think it, it comes down to a lot of semantics there because when you say uh, what's free trade, what's what's fair trade, uh, you know those those can be fuzzy terms. Um, very true. Know, I, very I think true. I would say I'm very much a, a free trader. Uh, that said, I would still support um, 
uh, you know, for uh, the example, uh, the uh, uh, prohibitions against dumping and, and so forth that exist in our, our current multinational trade deals. Um, and often what, what, you know, this turns on isn't a matter of, of are we free trade or, 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 or not, but how vigorously do we seek to enforce those, those provisions? We knew, um, and while we're thinking about free trade and fair trade, we might want to mention our, our second sponsor, which is ZipRecruiter. so. Because if, if you are in a uh, free market, one of the things that you're going to be looking for is the best possible talent that you can have. I know last week you guys were talking about Hope Hicks and that when you guys were talking about ZipRecruiter. Um, but I want to point out that whatever it is you're looking for, right, uh, whether it's another speechwriter like Donald Trump or an office manager, a programmer, whatever, ZipRecruiter can help you find a great fit for your job opening. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology matches the right people to your job better than anyone else out there. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter does not depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of employees who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within one day. And there's no juggling emails or calls to your office. You simply screen, rate, and manage candidates in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Don't end up hiring someone else. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified candidates with immediate results. And right now, Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash politicsguys. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash politicsguys. One more time so that even if you're listening to this part of the show at three times normal speed, you're still as likely to catch it. To post jobs for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash politicsguys. So, free markets, ZipRecruiter. Let's get back to the free markets. What do you think, Jay? <laughs> no, uh, uh, yeah, back to the the, the free markets. Um, you know, I think Trump's Trump's view, to if you sum it sum it up, is to avoid these uh, larger um, uh, organizations, these larger uh, multilateral trade deals, and focus more on bilateral. Work stuff out with with each individual country. Um, much as you would if you're in business, you work at a, you know, a different deal with every different supplier, every different customer, um, because you're able to maximize your advantage in doing that. Uh, you're less hamstrung, uh, so forth. So I, I think that's just kind of his, his general view of that. What, you know, I think the other thing that's, that's interesting about Trump is, is he's not saying that we shouldn't have, um, uh, sort of free trade. It, it's, it's a matter of, he believes the negotiations, uh, the the deals we're in right now, are are not as beneficial to the United States as they could be. And in some cases, I think he may be right. Um, and we ought to just renegotiate those, which is that's that's his mo. Um, well, but it, so I don't know. I, I don't think I don't think classical uh, liberalism in the free trade sense is is dead uh, uh, in the Republican Party. But but um, I think what this kind of signals, and I think you're hitting it on the head, is you said you know, it, it's not a good deal. And I mean, I don't think that there are any uh, free trade proponents who are arguing that every sector of a country will equally feel better, but rather that the entire the entirety of it will be better, right? right? So, for instance, you know, tr uh, steel 
may take a hit. Sugar production in the United States may take a hit. But overall, what you're getting will be a better deal overall. And it seems to me that the message that Trump is having here is one that he's long had, which says, look, we don't want to displace the steel worker, the coal worker, the sugar planter, because deals that allow those things at better prices from other countries hurt those people. And in that context, I'm not sure how you reconcile that with the idea of having large, truly free trade agreements. So, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, this idea of having bilateral agreements. But at that point now, you know, that, that's, a, that's a very different economic view, I think, yeah. than what has traditionally been the libertarian Republican position. Well, and I think the other the other piece of this, it's not even just what uh, the U.S. does; it's what other countries might do in response. If you're talking about raising tariffs uh, and so forth, that I think historically has been been shown to backfire in the long run, reduces trade, creates a trade war, um, uh, raises prices for for everyone, uh, and so forth. So, I, I mean, again, I don't think this is this is dead on the. Uh, uh, in the in the Republican Party, but but certainly Trump is is not the <laughs> Trump is not, and he never pretended to be certain a, no. a proponent of, of of classical free trade, uh, and that's that's something I've criticized him for 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 quite a while. Now, again, if if there are details that can be ironed out that can make uh, these deals more beneficial or uh, be be more leveling, and, and you know the other idea with 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 free trade, it's not even that. Uh, okay, some workers in this sector will be displaced, uh, and it's picked up in some other sector. But it's also a matter of over time um, that those those other sectors grow and and blossom uh, where they didn't exist before. Right, ones you no. can't even imagine. Yeah. No, I, so. I, I agree. Well, you know that that leans us, I think, maybe to another, maybe one of the bigger parts of the speech that have gotten. A response not only from the press, Jay, but also uh, from the people who he was articulating the speech at, and that's Trump's decision to go after North Korea. Uh, you know, in this context, we've been we've been talking for a number of weeks now about the escalating tensions between North Korea and the United States, and Trump very strongly threatens in his speech and argues that the U.S. will quote totally destroy and quote North North Korea, obviously if those kinds of behaviors continue. And then on Friday, Kim Jong-un made a very personal statement responding specifically that Trump was, quote, mentally deranged U.S. dotard. (laughs) Um, Interesting word choice there, Kim. I just want to point that out. And then he vowed to take the, quote, highest level of hardline countermeasures in history. End quote. It is interesting to me. <laughs> so that's a pretty high level. It is. Not only is it high level, but I, I think it's fascinating. We, we were talking about Trump using this political science term. It's as if like Kim had gone through a political science international relation and went, hardliner, that's what I am. We're going to put that in the speech. <laughs> um, and so following up that provocation, his uh, foreign minister, Rai Young-Hoo, notes that one option was that North Korea could conduct, quote, the biggest ever hydrogen bomb test in the Pacific, end quote. Trump then responds on Twitter yesterday that Mr. Kim is, quote, obviously a madman, end quote. You know, this is one time I don't know if I can disagree with uh, Trump very much. Uh, I know there's a lot to respond here to. Uh, what are your thoughts on this escalation? Is this just words? Are we, are we moving closer to some actual conflict? And 
What does that look like? What do you think, Jay? I, I think we will. And Mike and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I know you did. Yeah. He, made, he made the case that, that uh, Kim was actually uh, not crazy, uh, but was just acting in, in uh, really his, his own self-interest and, and self-promotion uh, in terms of what he needs to do to keep control of his country and, and to make himself uh, a bigger fish uh, in, uh, in Asia. Um, my sense is, yeah, I think a conflict is going to be inevitable. Um, you know, regardless of, of, of how it starts. But, you know, I, I thought about the the idea that, look, for the past 25, 30 years, we've been trying to negotiate with uh, the Kim regime, either him, him or his father, um, to prevent them from acquiring nuclear weapons uh, and to prevent them from acquiring using the means to deliver uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, and you have to say, after 25 years, all of that has failed. Um, if diplomacy was going to work, it would have worked by now. Um, you know, if you recall back in the nineties, we had, you know, we got him the Michael Jordan autographed basketball. Uh, <laughs> we had, um, had one Albright, uh, went over there and I mean, it it's just, you know, the, not, this is, was Kim's father, of course. Um, uh, Kim Jr. Probably still has the ball. I don't know, but, um, <laughs> it, 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 it's just a matter of, if the goal was to prevent them from having uh, nuclear weapons, we failed. Um, there are some who have suggested that, well, maybe what we just do is is we live with a deterrence-type situation and we accept that they have nuclear weapons, uh, uh, just as we accepted that the Soviet Union had nuclear weapons, um, and and deal with it like that way. But to me, I think the other the other piece is, if you accept that now, where are you another 25 years from now? Um, you know, back in the and, and Trey, you're younger than me, um, so you you don't you don't remember sort of the the you know the Cold War of the 1980s, uh, where there I mean there was a real fear. I mean, when I was a kid, uh, that that uh, you know the the entire world would be annihilated. Uh, yeah, and you're right. I don't think there's a difference there. I mean, I'm I'm my first political memory is is the wall coming down. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and I can remember, uh, you know, watching the day after on, on TV and, uh, the, you know, and, and sort of, sort of believing that, you know, uh, in addition to, you know, college prep stuff that I was preparing for in, you know, in, in high school, we'd, we'd probably have to be ready for like a Mad Max type society also, <laughs> um, just in case. Um, and I guess that's where I come down on the, can we accept you know, during during the the Cold War, that the U.S. and the Soviet Union had enough nuclear weapons to literally wipe out uh, every man, woman, and child uh, on the earth um, several times over. Uh, do we think that Kim will stop with a couple nuclear weapons? Uh, and my sense is no. He will continue to amass uh, a a stockpile and the ability to to use them and. If if we if we try to live with a deterrence type situation, uh, I think we'll end up down the road where the U.S. and North Korea have the power to wipe out every man, woman, and child on the earth. And I think that's it's a much different situation uh, dealing with uh, uh, anyone in the Kim regime as opposed to dealing with uh, Leonid Brezhnev uh, or Mikhail Gorbachev or or any of the Soviet leaders who were still uh, at at their heart uh, rational. You know, I'm I'm sympathetic to that view, Jay. And but I guess there's two things that uh, I might push back on a little bit. And one is, 
that while I agree, you, know, you don't want to live in that kind of fear. And then if, if states are going to have any purpose, one of them is undoubtedly to attempt to combat that, right? That international chaos. But does having this kind of war of words, does it really help that in any way? I mean, I can understand the emotional and symbolic element of calling him a madman, you know, putting that into the speech. But even if your ultimate goal is to need to have military intervention, doesn't this simply make it more difficult? Uh, doesn't this simply, I mean, it's, I mean, for example, if, you know, there's a bump in the night and I come out and I have my self-defense weapon, do I really want to start you know, yelling profanities into my living room if I think somebody's there? <laughs> uh, or do I just want to say, I've got a gun and move on, right? You know, hope that they move away or, I have, or then I have to use my gun. I mean, what do you think about I'd, that? I'd yell, the, I'd yell the profanities. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so you, you, you've got it, you've got it already figured out in advance. <laughs> Yeah, no, and and to, actually, on the contrary, I think this is this is sort of the the rhetoric that you know. Look, we we've sort of we need to establish uh, that democracy or uh, diplomacy has been exhausted, uh, and I think it has. And this is this is one of these steps, and it's one of these you get closer, and then okay, well, is there some sort of diplomatic off ramp? Uh, what would that be? My sense is there there is none. But you explore each of these these possibilities as you ratchet up, as you ratchet up. It's sort of like you really want to do this, you really want to go, you really want to go, um, and and that's that is. And sometimes, I mean, the the ways wars start, and uh, um, you know, again, I I don't at this point, um, you know, something else that they was the Wall Street Journal had a really good uh, uh, piece that they had reporters who toured North Korea under close supervision. Uh, and it, it's really an eye-opening sort of, sort of read. And I, I put that in my, what I'm reading this week, but, um, you, you realize that the, Kim is never going to back down on nuclear weapons. Uh, and even so, I don't think he'll back down on, on having more and more and more nuclear weapons. So, um, yeah, I, do I think it's, it's helpful in some ways? Yeah. Because it's sort of, um, it, it sets the stage. It shows that uh, we've exhausted every potential diplomatic off ramp that we can. And and look, if if Kim steps up, his next thing is okay. I'm going to detonate a nuke over the Pacific. Uh, that may well be the the last act in this before before some uh, military action takes place. Now I'm not sure that he'd do that. Uh, just in case, what if it's a dud? Uh, then he looks silly. Um, well, and, there, and there's the potential economic, or economic, excuse me, ecological ramifications for blowback on his own people and country and others. Yeah, but I don't think he's, I don't think he's so much worried about that. You know, I don't know if it, I don't think for he's he's starved millions, he is. millions of his people. He, he has literally starved to death. Well, but he also uh, doesn't I'm, want I'm, China coming at him. <laughs> <laughs> well, but yeah, I mean, which is, I think that's another part of the story that will have to continue to unfold. It's fascinating to me that China continues to be willing to not put as much pressure. I would have imagined at this juncture that China would have been putting, and maybe behind the scenes they are, right? I mean, this is a, this is a quiet kind of regime. You know, they're not going to necessarily broadcast those things. But if behavior is any indication, it does not appear that they're putting much pressure on North Korea, which is fascinating in my opinion. 
Well, and again, that's a, to me, that's another reason uh, why Trump ought to and why his, his statements uh, calling them a, a depraved regime that uh, uh, and saying that uh, Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and his regime, um, that hopefully will hit home uh, with the Chinese to the extent that, look, if there's anything left for them to do, either they're not doing it or what they're doing isn't working. Um, if there's anything left for them to do, they, they ought to do it because, because time's running out. Yeah. I, on that point, I have to agree that. And again, if you're China, I just, I don't understand why you would want the United States to even have an interest to involving itself in that region of the world. You would, you would want to deal with it for no other reason to have them not militarily there given their interest. But, Again, I know that uh, as a political scientist, it is sometimes difficult in the moment to be aware of all of the things that are happening until that kind of data and those kinds of documents come out later. You know, it's amazing what you learn. You, my, my sense is that the Chinese look at this and, you know, view things sort of in a zero-sum game, same, same as the Russians do, in that, um, look, if, if Kim is a thorn in our side, uh, that's all the better. You know, if it's one more hassle we have to deal with, that's all the better. If at some point they have any um, uh, way to help us out, do us a favor, uh, or threaten to make it worse, that gives them a little bit of leverage on us. Uh, and I think that's that's why they're they're okay seeing him stay there. Now, now again, uh, that would change if there were military action and they would have a flood of refugees. Or the threat that the South would would move in and expand the you know sort of a Western sphere of influence uh, in Asia. Um, so uh, yeah, we're not we're not there yet. But I think I think that's you know to the extent you can make sense. I think that's that's how they view this. That's the yeah. well. I, I guess as we continue to to look at it and see what happens, this is something we'll probably be talking about again. And we can only hope that uh, that it 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 goes well <laughs> i guess we'll put it on that on that note as best you can but you had made that comparison between china and russia a minute ago and another story that we want to take a look at this morning there's actually kind of two related ones one and it is, also goes to national sovereignty it yeah. does it does uh media matters had a big investigation into the matt drudge who is an aggregator site for those of you who aren't uh, aware Although I'm going to to assume most of our listeners are at least aware of Matt Drudge and and the Drudge Report. Full disclosure here, um, Jay, my guess is that you probably fall into this camp with me. I have long used the Drudge Report to get a feel uh, for a certain kind of conservative point of view. I mean, you can can read a lot by just looking at his uh, titles to links, uh, and I've used that for a long time. But what has I, I haven't looked, I haven't looked at the Drudge Report since uh, since the Blue Dress days. Oh, really? Yeah. Fast. Oh, that. See how interesting. Just it, just not my thing. Yeah. Well, I I have always done it just because it is an interesting view into that point of view, I and mean, you you can't but just be splashed by it. But anyway, we'll talk about that too. But uh, but you know, one of the things you're going to notice if you look at it. So, Jay, maybe you don't know this, but. Oftentimes, sources are very uneven. <laughs> like you'll sure. click through on things and you'll think, hmm, fascinating. But even I was a little shocked to find out that what Media Matters has disclosed is that the Drudge Report has linked to Russian propaganda websites way far more often than even I have realized. In fact, since 2012, uh, Drudge has done so nearly four 
500 times, and those figures increased nearly exponentially in 2015 and 2016, and then after the election, they taper down and off. Um, and this has led Media Matters to conclude that, quote, Russian media outlets are part of the right-wing media ecosystem, end quote, because they are promoted by the likes of Matt Drudge and Brett Bart and InfoWars. And right. so I want to start by, by kind of getting your take on that, and then we'll kind of bring the second story, the Facebook story, into this. So what do you, what do you think about this? This, this seems to be Russia and Trump is going to be the story that never goes away because there always seems to be more fire. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think the, the first of all, I guess you take it in, in, uh, in some context. And the left is sort of outraged that the Russians would be uh, doing this or peddling propaganda to influence other people's elections uh, when, in fact, they have done that for forever. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, back back to the, the 1917 days. Um, they've always been a, a force trying to, in one way or another, influence the elections uh, or the, the destinies of, of other countries. Um, so, I, you know, I guess as a conservative, I always look at this as, well, yeah, what do you expect? Of course they're doing it. Um, it's a shame that, that uh, Drudge has been taken in uh, by this, uh, apparently. Um, it's also, uh, you know, I, I don't know... I don't know how much how much bang for their buck though they've they've gotten out of this. Uh, I think the when you say they, you know, my, who do you mean here? Uh, the Russians. Okay. Oh, okay. Continue. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, my my sense is is that this has has been just sort of a uh, let's just stir the pot. I don't know that whether they particularly decided, hey, we'd like to elect Donald Trump. And it's interesting if you look back at the what President Obama's Justice Department was, was investigating. Uh, at that point, the conclusion was, uh, yes, the, the Russians were just trying to uh, screw up our electoral process to make it difficult, messy, uh, so that they can say, look, look at those uh, dumb Westerner, Westerners. Um, and then the narrative shifted uh, after the election, after Donald Trump actually won, that, that the Russians' aim was to elect Trump, which is not is not necessarily inconsistent with just to, to muck things up. Right. Um, uh, but. Uh, you know, I am. My question is: Look, there's there's probably a couple, a couple dozen dozen guys in some uh, basement in, uh, uh, you know, some somewhere in Siberia, making this stuff up. And uh, uh, you know, that's kind of their bureau. That's what they do. Uh, that's what they've always done. The internet makes it easier. Um, and again, it's a shame that Drudge picks up on it. It, it. You know, I don't know. You maybe you have a better sense as far as who who still reads the drudge drudge report and and what they they take away from it um but like i said i i haven't looked at it uh you know i, I since monica Lewinsky, okay, since, the, since the the clinton uh, uh days um well i'll tell you I mean, uh, same thing with, and again that's 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 more just a a personal style thing with me i'm i'm more a national review uh wall street journal american spectator kind of guy um uh and so, but it's in, I mean, it's interesting that you, you mentioned those like, so for instance, the wall street journal, one of the issues that we have with, uh, posting things online is that it can be difficult for some of these sites to get their, get their stories out because they're behind paywalls. And yeah, one of the things yeah. that I know all of us have, we were very careful of is we don't want to constantly link the things that we have access to that our readers, um, don't. Right. And so, you know, my area of specialization is political science actually is presidential politics and political communication. 
and what's interesting to me is is that I don't I don't often try to say, hey, I was right. But this is one time when I'm going to say, <laughs> hey, well, I, I was every right. I like, yeah, I tried. Go ahead. <laughs> you know, what I argued actually back in graduate school in my dissertation and in subsequent work has been that social media and the internet, you know, there was all of this idea that it was going to somehow make democracy better, right? That everybody was going to have this equal voice. And as a result of having an equal voice, we were going to have closer to the hope of everybody voting on their computers and, and things were going to be great. And I don't, everybody out there, listen, I am not a technophobe, right? I am right now on my desk. I like that would be the worst thing ever. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I have got a, you know, a MacBook, an iMac, and my iPhone, and my iPad, and I'm using all of that to do this. And I do the same thing in my class. So it's, again, you know, but. It doesn't mean that everything that happens will always have a positive outcome. And so I see this as being part of the idea that powerful voices have actually been able to make it look like you're having kind of groundswells of support because of the way you can buy ads, place your things higher, the nature of social media. Uh, I think it has actually led to more unilateral information distribution, not less, ironically. Um, because most I, I people think share, right they people don't get make into their own things. echo chambers. Yes, and matter of fact, there's a book about that entitled like, "The Echo Chamber." <laughs> Not my book, by the way. But so there's another story though that comes out of this, and I know you wanted to get into this too, Jay. And I think it kind of goes along. We got the news this week that Facebook had Russian-linked ads, and it's turning over. We don't even know if this is all of them, but that they're turning over three thousand of them to congressional committees yeah. investigating the matter. This has finally come up after Facebook was caught where there were 470, there's some conflicting reports, but I'm going to go with the 470 Russian-linked accounts posing as Americans, buying ad space, promoting primarily Trump or other kinds of views, and they were getting hammered for this. So finally, they kind of come out and they're trying to get in front of it. Zuckerberg has a statement. They're going to turn all of this over. Uh and I'll admit that this is, just makes me even a little more leery of Facebook. I mean, again, everybody's going to think that I'm the, I'm the guy hiding in the closet this week. But what do you think in the context of what we've already been talking about with Media Matters? What do you think about this Facebook story? Trump has already told us what he thinks. He said, quote, it's a hoax, end quote. I, on that one, I have to disagree. I mean, obviously, you know, Facebook well, no, is I, making all this I, bad I think, I think Trump press for no reason. Words. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? No, I mean, I do don't think, think it's a hoax and that it's not real. Uh, I, I think I think there is maybe some, uh, a, not some, a lot. And to me, the the big point of the Facebook uh, story was uh, what they've discovered is that uh, the Russians have paid uh, one hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars for Facebook ads, uh, ostensibly to uh, influence the American election. Um, and to me, that that sort of highlights the. How how minuscule the the issue of Russian interference actually is, um, because I, I don't know. I mean, if our listeners were, I mean, one hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. You know, look, that's that's not even a rounding error uh, in terms of <laughs> what, in terms of what was spent on the last presidential election. Uh, I I think it was I want to say ten billion. You know, that's uh, that is something I should have off the top of my head. I know. Yeah, that, I know, believe, but it's it's in the it's in the uh, double digits of billions of dollars. Uh, and we're talking about one hundred fifty thousand dollars. I've I've run campaigns, you know, I run, you know local you know city issue campaigns uh, that are, are, are close to that. And the idea that, you know, if the Russians are really have a, a 
secret plan in uh, disrupting our election. Uh, and they're going to they're willing to commit one hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars to it. Um, you know, that that this is something really big and scary. And my sense is there, there's this is like I said, there's some there's some bureau in, in the uh, uh, Russian intelligence service that uh, uh, does this in, in some basement. And, uh, you know, that's that was- <laughs> they, they blew their whole budget on this. And, you know, I don't know what they they got for it other than what the media is is giving to them now. Well, you know, it's interesting um, you say that because I, in some ways, saw the 150 as this being the beta test. I saw this as being the, you know, how much of this can we do? How, you know, how does it work? So I didn't, what's interesting, I, I agree with you in one sense that, it, that it's a footnote, but it's a footnote like somebody uh, infecting their buddy's computers with a virus to test it. It's not that that the thing itself is uh, harmless, because I agree with you, right? I mean, that's not enough money to be talking about swaying a presidential election, even in terms of Facebook or anything else. I mean, that's, that's, that, but I see this as being the beta test. A lot of congressional elections. Yeah. I mean, I I see this as being the way to, I think this was Russia saying, I wonder if we can do this. You know, you you don't spend a billion to find out if you can do it. You spend chump change to find out if you can do it. But there's nothing, but there's nothing to find out how to do though. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's like, all right, uh, you know, you sign up with a fake name and, and you buy an ad. Um, well, but I mean, you're going to get all of the data because, and again, if you log into Facebook as either they're having an ad or as, you know, as we get to do, right, you, you can find incredible amounts of data and so forth. Yeah. yeah so the, I think what they were trying to do is float this and maybe run some big scale data analytics and say, hey, okay, we do this on a small scale. What kind of eyeball viewer are we getting? What kind of click rate percentage are we getting? What kind of, I mean, is this worth even pursuing or not? And I think they were buying the data. So I think this is $150,000 towards a bunch of data on how you can use or not use effectively Facebook to mess with other countries. I mean, that, that could be. Uh, and again, the, the, I guess the, our, our two theories aren't, aren't really inconsistent. I mean, I, it can be both. Very true, um, very and true. also I would say that the interest there were the interesting revelations uh, last week about, uh, attempted hacking with state election systems, uh, would seem to follow down that similar path where there was, uh, apparently no attempt or no real, uh, ability to, to alter vote tallies, but it was just a matter of, of, uh, these agencies, Russian entities seeing if they can get into the system. Um, with the idea maybe of of manipulating the voter data, um, not the actual vote tallies, mind you, but just just to th- throw a wrench into things like you screw up and you, hey, here I'm here to vote. What you're not registered? I mean that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, again, my sense is that this is the sort of stuff that has gone on for uh, forever. This is just a more high tech version of it. Um, uh, should should Facebook uh, be more cognizant of uh, who's buying its ads and how its data is being distributed? Sure, um, but but really the other thing is there's nothing illegal about what uh, uh, about these these Russian ads on Facebook. I mean it's it, other than they you know I guess violated the Facebook terms of terms of service by by posing as someone else. Um, right, and, and po- but it's I mean, not like there's it, it's it's not a, a a a crime as compared to like hacking into you know a voter data system. True. Very, very true. So it'll be interesting to kind of see what continues with that, that drip, drip of a story. But um, I know that, Jay, you also wanted to chat a little bit about another interesting story going on this week, the Alabama primary. 
Yeah, and I know we're 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 running late on time on on this today, but I think it's it's just fascinating. There is a uh, this is the runoff election to replace um, uh, Senator Jeff Sessions, um, and, and there are two two candidates. One, a Luther Strange, who is a conservative, uh, uh, but still he is sort of the establishment candidate, and he's running against uh, Roy Moore, who is a former justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, who many will remember has a has a thing for the Ten Commandments, uh, and was was essentially. Uh, uh, de-judged, de uh, <laughs> held in contempt for failing to remove a, a Ten Commandments monument. Um, and I think the, the fascinating thing to me is that uh, Trump is weighing in on this race, and he's weighing in on the side of Luther Strange, uh, who is also, again, the, the, the candidate of Mitch McConnell. And, and this, is, this is Trump, uh, again, supporting what is the, who is the establishment candidate, albeit probably a more conservative establishment candidate than you'd find in other places. Um, and, and I thought that was that's fascinating. Now, where you have other figures on the right, such as Sarah Palin and uh, Trump former uh, aide uh, uh, Gorka, and I'm forgetting his first name, um, uh, who, have, who have recently been out campaigning for uh, more. So, I, I, you know, as, a, as, as you're a sort of a uh, libertarian uh, Republican, I, I guess I get your see where you think what you think on this but uh i think it's fascinating that i mean trump might not be the rebel that uh that he he appears to be well you know and you had been even mentioning off the show one of the interesting things as we were kind of prepping that one of the reasons this could be is the one of the things that makes trump unique is he's not part of the religious right you know yeah. and so whereas and, and while he Palin attracted is, those voters in, in in the primary certainly and i think in the general but yeah yeah i mean that's just not that's not his thing again i, I don't want to hammer anybody for a misstep forever but his two corinthians <laughs> comment sure. and others are, are are telling on that front so well and, and i don't i don't expect trump to put up a 10 commandments monument uh anywhere <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, and I think there's that probably explains a lot of this. Yeah. yeah, in the white, I, yeah, that just doesn't. Um, <laughs> that's just a great image, though. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think that's interesting. And it, so I don't know if this marks Trump switching to mainstream candidates in general, or if it has more to do with the particularities of this Alabama primary. And one of the interesting thing is at this point, at least, uh, Luther Strange is, is the underdog. Um, I had noticed that because what were the yeah, most recent numbers? I don't have those in front of me. I, I don't have it in front of me either, but but it was a matter of he was was it was sort of like a 42 to 38 type type split, yeah, that sounds which right. which to me, I mean, again, looking at, at, at poll numbers, I think is fine because um, more is someone who would naturally have uh, more. Uh, uh, name recognition um, uh, than than Strange would, and it's this is kind of Trump stepping in gives gives Strange that that extra push that he would have needed. And uh, you know that said, I think that the trend is going to be I think Luther Strange will win the race, but um, uh, again, it's it's just a I think it it says a little something about um, uh, you know again he he may be crazy, but he he might not be that that crazy and the other, the other piece is and again alabama you i think for all intents and purposes we can assume would be a safe republican senate seat um but with with roy moore there's there's a chance that it might not be um 
So uh, I, I think there's there's also I think Strange is the the better general election candidate down the road. I think he'll be he would be the better senator to work with. Uh, I think that might also play into Trump's calculation. Uh, who do I want to deal with? Uh, this guy that you you can't work with at all. Who even gets uh, you know held in contempt by uh, by his peers? Uh, uh, you know over his 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 Ten Commandments predilections. Um, you know, who who would you rather uh, be trying to deal with when you're trying to get that 50th vote? Um, so I, I don't know. And again, I don't know how much of a story story this is at this point. We'll see as as the race continues. I just thought it was something that was interesting and, and worth mm-hmm. worth noting. Well, and on that and on that front, we had listeners. We had talked about talking about the Republican health care bill, uh, but it it seems pretty clear right now that it's not going forward. Uh, McCain. Um, Rand Paul and others have come out against it. So it doesn't look like we're not going to spend any time on it today. We're going to keep looking at it. We were, we were getting, I was getting all geared up to tell you about what a great uh, piece of legislation it was going to be. Um, but that would seem to be kind of a wasted effort at this point. Yeah. It, yeah. It's not, it's not going anywhere, no matter what you think about it. But if that changes, you know, we can take that up on a, on a future show. So instead, why don't we go ahead and turn to what we're reading uh, Jay, you already kind of gave a hint at what you're reading. I actually, right before Irma decided that it was going to turn towards Florida, I had picked up Jefferson and Hamilton, the rivalry that forged the nation. Okay. And uh, I, have a, I had a little bit more time while we were evacuated to read. <laughs> and it has actually, it has been a phenomenal book. It's an, an author I really appreciate, John Furling. Um, also the work of the ascent of George Washington, which by the way, if you have extra time, read that too. Uh, it, it, what it's basically doing is taking a look at the United States and the competing visions that come from Hamilton and Jefferson. So it's kind of light on biography and heavy on the ideology and writings of these two guys and contrasting it. As a matter of fact, I wouldn't, just a forewarning, if you have not read any other biographies or background on Jefferson and Hamilton, this might not be your favorite book in the world. But if you have read one for each of these gentlemen, uh, then this probably will be your favorite book in the world. So just a heads up, you know, it's, there is an assumption here that you have a little bit of background with both um, Jefferson and Hamilton, but I would highly recommend that one. So Jay, what about you? Oh, that well, actually, I, I do want to check that out because that's uh, that is an area that I am I am fascinated by. Uh, and oh, Mike yeah. and I have have great disagreements on that. Um, I don't know if you call Mike a, a Hamiltonian, but he's he's very much an anti-Jeffersonian. Which is um, fascinating, given uh, that he's the party of Jefferson. But anyway, right, right, right. Oh, I, I agreed, agreed. Um, uh, my what I'm reading, and again, I, I mentioned the, um, uh, the 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 North Korea story, but but there was something else that was going on, and, and uh, it's a couple different articles, and I think we'll we'll post them all. Uh, Heather McDonald had a piece on this in the Wall Street Journal. There was an original piece by it uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, but uh, there were two professors, law professors, and I think I may even mentioned this before, uh, who wrote a piece regarding um, bourgeois norms, uh, and maybe that's that's the way uh, society might might get uh, might be, might be best improved, uh, or at least their argument is that uh, society with uh, following bourgeois norms, and I'll just define that in just a second, um, uh, is better than. Um, uh, some of the alternatives, uh, and predictably, predictably, uh, they have been lambasted, uh, for, uh, you know, all sorts of racism, sexism, all the horrible stuff. Um, the original article was in the Philadelphia Inquirer and, uh, called for a revival of the cultural script, 
that's their term. Uh, they had prevailed in the 50s, which goes something like this. Uh, get married before you have children. Strive to stay married for the children. Get the education you need for gaining uh, gainful employment. Work hard. Uh, eschew substance abuse and crime. Uh, those are sort of the the typical things that I think most people's parents or grandparents would have told them. Uh, and what I think is interesting is the the left, the backlash from the left against this. Um, so I, I think it's it's a fascinating discussion. I I'm, I'm, I think we're going to talk about trying to get some of these these folks on to do an interview oh, at some fascinating. point. Um, but, but to me, that is, is very much at the heart of sort of, uh, you know, what we often talk about Burkean conservatism, mm -hmm. uh, which is, which is that you, you don't rely so much on, on the government. Uh, it's, it's fallback on traditional values and, and, and your families and your neighbors and other relationships that that's, that's the, the stronger governing force. That's the glue, uh, of society, uh, so to speak. Um, and now liberals often have problem because because some traditions are are terrible, and we've had some some terrible traditions. Uh, but I think they they make the they make the mistake of saying uh, all tradition is bad. Um, so um, uh, I, I would I would uh, we'll we'll post those. Uh, but the Heather McDonald piece in uh, Thursday's Wall Street Journal sort of sets it out, and I'll get the original Philadelphia Inquirer one too. Um, but uh, the idea is, look, if if we can. It, it it would transcend race if people would would um, you know take these steps and and sort of better their lives uh, on their own and, and it's it's also not not too far uh, away from the argument that Charles Murray has made uh, in uh, Falling Apart um, that uh, if if you look at the uh, the the values practiced by upper class whites versus the values practiced by lower class whites. Uh, they 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 sort of preach one thing and and uh, practice another. So, what's well, so fascinating? I'll be interested to read that myself. So we'll be posting both of those online, of course, as we always do. Um, and as we kind of close out the show, I want to remind our listeners of our two sponsors for this week. Uh, the first was Da Vinci. Uh, they are where you can have your meetings all across cities around the world. So book your space now at davincimeeting.com/tpg. And that first hour is on them. That's davincimeeting.com slash TPG. And your first hour is free. Terms and conditions apply for details. See davincimeeting.com slash TPG. Where are you holding your next meeting? And our second recruiter was Zip Recruiter. Uh, and right now, remember, Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on Zip Recruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ziprecruiter.com slash politics guy. That's ziprecruiter.com slash politics guy. One more time so that even if you're listening to this part of the show at three times the normal speed, you're still likely to catch it. To post jobs for free, go to ziprecruiter.com slash politics guy. Thank you so much for being with us this week, and we look forward to talking to you next time.